Welcome to Asia-Pacific Defense Reporter, your go-to source for cutting-edge security insights in the region. Get ready for rapid-fire analysis and commentary from the Asia-Pacific with your host, Kim Bergman. Hello and welcome back. In the last podcast, I had a few words to say about the Joint Committee of Public Accounts and Audit looking into the Hunter-class frigate program, and uh, there's a lot more to come out on this. And this is a committee, the hearings of which uh, have been very much underreported in Australia. I can't quite understand why, because it's not just for Canberra bubble policy wonks. What's coming out is departmental mismanagement at a very significant level when it comes to the selection process for the hunter-class frigates. Now, it's a $45 billion project, so it's significant in terms of money. It's also very significant in terms of defence capability. And we're getting more and more evidence, including most recently on the 20th of November, from the Secretary of the Department of Defence himself, Greg Moriarty, who made a number of, I think, crucial reflections or statements, including he agreed that the Type 26 design was immature. It was assessed formally as actually being as mature as the other two designs, which were actual ships in the water. He also indicated in no uncertain terms that he had been misled by his own department, or to put it another way, had not been fully informed about certain key aspects of the way the evaluation process had been handled. Uh, In the same hearings, the Department of Finance made it clear that they, in their evaluation of the project, relied entirely on information, well, numbers in particular, being provided by defence. They took all of this on trust. They said that they received a lot of pushback from the department when they tried to be critical of the process or adjust the process. Anyway, there's a lot more that's going to come out on on this. Oh, and by the way, I noticed that uh, one of the formal submissions to the committee was from the UK government, and buried in the detail of that is a further delay in the initial operational capability being declared for the Type 26 reference ship. That's now moved from October 2027 to October 2028. And I can tell you that if there's a delay announced now from 2027 to 2028, that's not a very good sign at all. It's adding on to earlier delays, and so there are just more question marks about the Hunter-class frigate program. The committee, I think, is driving towards a couple of very important things. Firstly, to find out uh, who was responsible for this series of breaches of process, the most important of which being there was no formal value-for-money assessment in the selection of BAE systems. If I'm reading the tea leaves correctly, uh, the chairman of the committee, Julian Hill, a very good cross-examiner, I've mentioned him before, potential future defence minister in my opinion, or at least, you know, a minister of some seniority. He is trying to sheet the blame 
not unsurprisingly, to the former coalition government. His questions are structured around the lines of clearly the department was pressured to make a certain decision. The department accepts that they were certainly pressured to accelerate the process. There's still a lot of pushing and shoving going on about which was the correct design. Now, my own suspicion is that we will never have a definitive answer to that one, but I've got to say, it's not looking particularly good for BAE Systems and the Hunter Class Frigate Program, because as I've reflected before, we have the review in the background of the entire naval surface fleet that keeps, you know, the release of the government's response to which has been delayed until February next year. We don't know why, but one of the casualties, perhaps not in terms of cancellation, but certainly in terms of reduced numbers, is the Hunter Class program. Now, by the way, if it were to be cancelled, this committee has done a pretty good softening up job in the sense that if the selection was based on Uh, I'll say corrupted process, not in the sense of financial corruption, but corrupted in the sense the proper process was not followed, it does clear the way, or further clear the way, I should say, for a cancellation. Again, I'm if to give people a, an indication of how I'm feeling, I'd say that's unlikely, but I can't rule it out. Maybe a 10% chance. I think a far more likely outcome is reducing the number of ships from a nominal nine down to five or maybe down to three. Anyway, I feel emboldened because of all of this by making some tougher reflections on some defence activities than I have previously because, I mean, I try and, as always, try and be factual about these sorts of things, but that these hearings have led me to the conclusion, and I'm sure a lot of other people would feel the same, if other projects were subject to the same level of analysis that, that they're getting from the, the Joint Committee, a number of major flaws would be exposed. Now, the internet is indeed a wonderful thing, and I can go there and find out facts such as $1 billion dollars in $100 notes would be approximately 18 cubic meters in size. Just try to visualize or help people visualize what a billion, what $1 billion looks like. So it would be a cramped two-car garage. Now, hold on to that thought because I'm going to come back to it again. And the, the target that I have in mind at the moment, I've gone on about this in the past, is the completely unnecessary purchase of Black Hawk helicopters to replace Taipans that is in the process of costing $3 billion. Now, that's 54 cubic meters of $10 notes, three two-car garages, maybe one very large five-car garages. My contention is the Taipans could and should have remained in service until 2038, as is the case for the majority, the, the vast majority of other users of the aircraft. And, of course, the decision to retire them prematurely is something that I've reflected on previously, but I'll go into a few more details now. Now, let's be clear at the start. Blackhawks are a fine helicopter. They are a very mature design. 
They are robust helicopters and they are relatively simple to operate. I've flown around in some and I have absolutely no complaints. They still use mechanical controls, unusual in this day and age, meaning that things like the pedals in the cockpit are actually physically connected by wires and pulleys and things like that to control uh, surfaces. Taipan, much more modern, much more capable. Fly-by-wire control system, so it's computers and electrical wires sending signals to actuators. Easier to maintain, safer, more precise, all of those sorts of things. But let's look at some of the other metrics comparing Taipan with Blackhawk. Taipan has a flight time of four and a half hours. Blackhawk, two and a half hours. So already you can see just by that metric that there's a huge performance difference in favor of Taipan. Now, Blackhawk boosters, of whom there are many, say, well, you can increase the range of Blackhawks by adding on drop tanks, but you know, that's increasing the weight reducing the mobility. And guess what? I I have heard very recently that those drop tanks are no longer being produced. Uh, Now, uh, another important factor, Taipan has a weather radar. Blackhawk does not. Blackhawks don't like operating in bad weather. You prefer to leave them on the ground. Taipan makes no difference. With the weather radar, they can see what's going on in front of them, around them, they can choose the optimum path to fly, all of that sort of stuff. You are much better off in a Taipan in bad weather than in a Blackhawk. Blackhawk is likely to stay sitting on the ground. Now, fundamentally, Taipan is designed to far stricter commercial standards with tolerances to a level of faults to 10 to the minus 9 Blackhawk is 10 to the minus 6. And that also, by the way, helps explain why there are more flight checks involved before flying a Taipan. Commercial standards are much stricter than military standards. You don't want loads of civilians being killed in air crashes. When it comes to the military, the sad reality is the standards there are a little bit lower. I guess it's kind of a voluntary assumption of risk thing. Now, Another feature that we should all be well aware of by now, certainly if you've been listening to my podcasts, Taipan comes with flotation devices, as we saw in the ditching of a helicopter in March in uh, Nara. Blackhawk does not. Blackhawk and the, its sister, the Romeo, if they go into the drink, they will sink. Taipans will float. The only... And, and, you know, meaning that the crew can be safely evacuated. Now, we did see the the tragic crash of a Taipan during Talisman Sabre, where all four people uh, on board tragically lost their lives, but there was no chance for that helicopter to deploy its flotation devices because from what we know at the moment, the helicopter hit the sea traveling so fast that there was no chance to use them, either manually and the automatic system just didn't have time to react. No lesser figure than Simon Stewart, the chief of the army, for whom I have a great deal of respect, told Senate estimates about this decision that he used the uh, phrase, everyone had tried hard to make Taipan work, but unfortunately, it had proved impossible despite the good intentions of everyone involved. Well, sir, with the greatest respect, I say to you, 
that's simply not good enough. You and KASG and everyone else in defence have never really come to grips with uh, why Taipan has had low availability rates. Well, actually, you have. There have been two internal reports, but they have both been suppressed. I doubt that you would have read them. They've been classified top secret and buried. Now, if Army and Defence and KASG had really wanted to understand what was going on, they would have sent people to New Zealand to find out why New Zealand has been able to successfully operate their Taipans. They didn't even need to visit there. They should. They could have just called. They could have sent an email. And I've been dismayed on the very rare occasions when I've had the chance to ask Army aviation people directly, how is it New Zealand can keep their Taipans going and we can't? The, the, the answer has been, frankly, almost childish. It's, oh, well, the New Zealanders do things differently and we don't know how they do it. Well, get off your backsides and find out. Instead, defence, and I include politicians, I include a succession of ministers, have weakly given in to a relatively small number of pro-US boosters who have always wanted Blackhawk instead of Taipan. And for that matter, they've also wanted Apache rather than Tiger. And there's a lot more to come on that. I can't do both helicopter classes in one podcast. But believe me, Apache is part of the same depressing, dismal pattern. Now, politicians over the last 10 years have caved in because they neither know nor care. They're too busy looking for opportunities to smear their opponents or off playing golf or off hosting visiting delegations than to do their actual jobs. I've always, well, what has always been needed when it comes to, well, Taipan in particular, also Tiger, is a drastic overhaul of army logistics. And if that cannot be achieved, if that's been contemplated, and if it's just too difficult, then move the job to the RAF. The Air Force is equipped to keep modern digital platforms flying, transfer it to, to them. Instead, the approach has always been to demonize the manufacturer Airbus helicopters, and successive ministers have gone along with this nonsense because they are just too lazy to even do some basic fact-checking. And the final piece of stupidity I've heard in this completely depressing topic is that defence is thinking of disposing of the 45 perfectly good Taipans by burying them somewhere. Literally. That's the latest word. That, that even the idea of, you know, selling them or warehousing them or whatever is proving too difficult. So just dig a big hole somewhere. Now, remember the beach shack totally packed with to the rafters with $100 bills? Have you got that in your head? Imagine dosing that in petrol, stepping back, setting a fire to it and watching it all burn. That is what Army, Defence and your government has just done. Commit to the flames $3 billion buying unnecessary Blackhawks because they've been too lazy, too incompetent or too unwilling to do the hard work of fixing the actual problem. So, people of Australia, behold a shack full of $100 bills 
worth a total of $3 billion going up in smoke just because your elected officials can't be bothered doing their jobs. Now, imagine that be, that same circumstance uh, being replicated for the cancelled attack program. The cost of that was $3 billion. So there goes another beat shack, absolutely crammed with $100 notes. Next in line, a smaller beat shack crammed with banknotes. That's the unnecessary $2.65 billion because, um, again, pro-US Army boosters are buying second-hand Abrams main battle tanks. Next, the cancelled Land 200 battle management system from Elbert. Again, a huge army failure. That's around $2 billion worth of burning currency. The AUKUS down payment, which I've gone on about, $4.7 billion or $5 billion if you include the forced purchase of the Surtas Todoray Sonar, is 90 cubic metres of $100 notes. And an even bigger one, as I've touched on, the unnecessary replacement of the Tiger ARH with Apaches, that's $7 billion or 126 cubic metres of cash up in smoke. Now, imagine all of that happening at the same time. In, in fact, there's a certain concurrency to these things. These are all events that have occurred in the last, what, two years. You're looking at a row of burning beach houses full of money because no one can be bothered doing genuine analysis of what is needed, let alone manage how the money is being spent. Now, about half of the defence budget, I'll add to that, is made up of the salaries of defence personnel. That's just, you know, that's just budgetary fact. This year, a $50 billion defence budget is seeing about $25 billion going in paychecks. So if the time, travel and expenses of all of the people involved in these failed projects or unnecessary purchases is taken into account, those large piles of burning cash can probably be doubled. Um, all systems have waste. No one does procurement perfectly. There's no doubt about that. But Australia in the last few years seems to be deteriorating and we seem to be ramping up our efforts to spend money for little or no return at all. I'll just take a deep breath there. As far as I can tell, this is happening for two main reasons. A lack of internal contestability, which I've touched on before, and I'll again in the future delve into that, and also a lack of personal accountability. That's another topic dear to my heart. I was at this point going to tell a personal story about a lack of personal responsibility, not on my behalf, but uh, an example that I was involved in. But with an eye on the clock, I'll have to save that for next time. Now, a couple of just to finish up on a, a couple of quick matters. Australia frustratingly still refuses to open our embassy in Kiev. Uh, we had the situation of uh, an Australian soldier, well, I mean, sorry, an Australian fighting with Ukraine who was killed in action about a week ago, and arrangements for his body to be repatriated are being done uh, via the New Zealand embassy in Kiev. Because of the 50 countries supporting Ukraine, Australia is the only one refusing to reopen our embassy. And I had the light bulb went off in my head. I thought, why are we unique in this regard? Why is the government hiding behind 
this idea of advice from the security service. Now, supposedly, it's the security officials who keep on saying, well, we advise against it. The, and the, and the, the government, cow, ethical cowards that they are, saying, oh, well, you know, if it were up to us, it might be different, but the security people, and we can't go against their advice. Well, yes, you can. You can overrule it. But here's the thought that I have had. The government is hiding behind the same excuse for not releasing details of VIP aircraft flights. All of this stuff used to be on the record until about 18 months ago. Now the government is saying exactly the same thing. Oh, well, we would like to, but the security people are advising us that it would be providing pattern of life movement information, which you get from the social media pages of ministers anyway. So connect the dots. No, that they're, they're not going to uh, buck security advice when it comes to Kiev because then they'll be asked questions. If you're disregarding the advice regarding the embassy in Kiev, why can't you disregard the advice for VIP flights? So I think it's all tied in together. Now, just for fun, in the next episode, um, I am going to describe possibly the most damaging leak to national security in recent times. And I'm going to mention this because, thankfully, Mark Trafus, the Attorney General, is making some legislative changes which will give journalists a few more protections. But I'm out of the the time vault, so to speak. Uh, Go into an incredibly damaging leak about the Collins Class program that came not from a whistleblower, not from a pesky journalist, but in fact, a jealous RAN officer who decided to blow up the Collins submarine program out of jealousy. It's a good story, and I'm looking forward to telling it. Thank you for listening, and see you next time. Bye for now. That's today's Asia-Pacific Defence Reporter. For more in-depth articles, expert opinions, and exclusive interviews, visit asiapacificdefensereporter.com. Stay informed, stay ahead. This is your source for all things defence. Until next time.